you remember the good old days when all you had to worry about was getting your homework done and getting home before curfew? Before you had to worry about jobs, projects, working, when you could long for a summer vacation and a winter break? Well, this is the podcast for when you realize that life can be hard. Hold on one moment. <sighs> Finally, he's gone. The last thing I need to hear is him plugging another podcast. Come take a listen to my show, Adulting Ain't Easy, every other Wednesday on the Journey into Comics Network. The following, the following is a journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. You're listening to Poor Entertainment with your host. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Poor. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Poor Entertainment, the show that brings you entertainment news in all its forms and places. Now I'm going to jump right in because it's been kind of a crazy day. It's kind of late in recording for me. I usually record much earlier on a Monday and here we are kind of later in the evening just trying to get everything done and out for you just because I want to present a good show to you guys and kind of jumping in kind of unwrapping a few things and one of those is actually kind of veering into a little bit of poor news territory and that involves Donald Trump and Taylor Swift now obviously those two should have nothing in common she was never on like Celebrity Apprentice he doesn't make someone to be a big fan of country music but um according to this article from the Huffington Post Donald Trump says he likes Taylor Swift's music 25% less now I wonder what you're thinking, the same thing I saw when I saw the article, like, what is that about? So I guess many conservatives are mad that the singer endorsed a Democrat in Tennessee Senate race. Um, so Donald Trump says he's less of a Taylor Swift fan than he was yesterday. The singer got publicly political for the first time on Sunday when she declared her support for Tennessee Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, Phil Bredesen, in an Instagram post. In the process, she uh, trashed the Republican contender, Rep. Marsha Blackbird, who leads in the polls. Many conservatives not surprised to react with outrage at Swift's taking a stand that parts company with them, and upset were white supremacists and neo-Nazis who in the past somehow convinced themselves that Swift was on their side. Trump, in comments to reporters Monday afternoon, took an approach that somewhat seemed more statesman-like than most of his statements, while sounded petty in a way only he can. Trump tells, uh, this is from a Twitter post from Catherine Watson. Trump tells us upon arriving back at the White House, he likes Taylor Swift's music, but maybe about 25% less now that she has endorsed Bredesen. In the past, Trump has claimed to be a big fan of Swift's. As in the tweet from nearly six years ago, glad to hear that Taylor Swift will be co-hosting the Grammy nomination special on 12.5. Taylor is terrific. Rex on Twitter to Trump's declaration includes skepticism that he really had an interest in Swift's music. Um, someone tweeted, can you name one song? Someone else tweeted, Ruthon Trump marinates in adolescent pettiness. What's his next move calling Kanye to share Taylor Swift horror stories? Uh, another Twitter post was, when he says stuff like this, why doesn't he translate what a complete phony he is? Uh, I hope his next movie is to tell all his, tw- or his next move is to tell all his Twitter followers to listen to Katy Perry's songs exclusively for the next week. This guy, uh, who does not know the words to the national anthem, couldn't pick Taylor Swift out of a lineup, I am sure. So some fun Twitter posts about that, and I could really care less about Taylor Swift or Donald Trump at this point. Definitely never dull moan it, though, when he's around. So that was kind of the first thing I saw today. Another thing that broke down, and I think um, the guys at Bruce, or not gosh, Bruce, the guys at Podcast Free who uh, hosted JIC this week did break down Venom, but 
I kind of want to get into some of the box office numbers because um, there's some early the projections for the first week did better than expected. So early projections put Venom between 50 million and 60 million, and actually overperformed in a big way. Venom's estimated 80 million debut was more enough to best the previous October box office opening weekend record of 55.8 million set by Gravity in 2013. While this debut is definitely stronger than expected, it doesn't exactly hold a candle to the rest of the Spider-Man franchise, but strong compared to the most superhero spin-offs. Venom's debut actually doesn't even come close to the original Spider-Man trilogy from director Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire as the webbed wonder. 2002 Spider-Man had a 114.8 million debut, 403.7 million domestic uh, total. So opening weekend record at the time, but the 2004 sequel Spider-Man 2 did slide significantly with 88.2 million and 373.6 million. So not actually much less than what Venom brought in, and Spider-Man 2 is probably arguably the best of that trilogy. 2007 Spider-Man 3, um, which starred Tover Grace's Venom slash Eddie Brock, rebounded with another then record, 151.1 million. Which is interesting, because not a lot of people like that. The record debut is also ironic, though, since it had the worst domestic haul of the three, and considered the trilogy's worst by fans and critics alike. Oh, yeah, that's... Um, creative differences between Raimi and the studio led someone to scrap their proposed fourth movie in the franchise and just reboot it. Although seriously lackluster results, five years after Spider-Man 3, Sony released The Amazing Spider-Man in 2012, starring Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man and Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. While Spider-Man 90% Rotten Tomatoes and Spider-Man 2 93% on Rotten Tomatoes were a critical hit, Spider-Man 3 took a bit of a hit with 63 point, or 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. That trend doesn't carry over into the new franchise that made Spider-Man sort of solid 72, but did not lead to box office success. The main Spider-Man opened with just 62 million, franchise low despite opening to a franchise high of 4,318 4, theaters. They're in a middling 262 million domestic which would be a franchise low until the sequel dropped in 2014. The base of Spider-Man 2, surprisingly enough, it did improve quite a bit on its opening weekend, earning $91.6 million, but it's a tally of $2.9 million domestic. That still stands a franchise low to this day, with the studio seemingly getting back on the right track. So it seems like Venom's on track to do better than the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, that duo of movies, but doesn't hold a torch to the MCU, Spider-Man. So... Let's see. After those abysmal figures, Sony went back to the drawing board, reached a shared right deal with Marvel, and resulted in the new, much younger Spidey, played by Tom Holland, making a memorial due in Captain America Civil War before last year's Spider-Man Homecoming, which made $117.2 million in debut and $334.2 million domestic. Despite critical and fan acclaim, Spider-Man Homecoming itself couldn't even surpass any of the movies from the original trilogy. Marvel gets to use Spider-Man in movies like Avengers Infinity War, Spider-Man Far From Home, which is currently filming, and the highly anticipated Avengers 4. Well, Sony's laying the foundation for its own Spidey spin-off universe with Venom. When you look a little closer, Venom's uh, $18,831 per screen average from 40,250 theaters is better than the per screen average of The Amazing Spider-Man, which had 14360 per screen. But it fell short of the 21186 per screen average of The Amazing Spider-Man 2, what Venom does have going forward is what produced on just a $100 million budget in a day and age when most superhero movies are produced on double that figure or more. Well, the figure at the low end for the franchise as a whole wouldn't compare to the other superhero spinoffs Venom ranks rather high. When it comes to superhero spinoffs as a whole, Venom's debut is somewhat in the upper echelon, but it's really more in the middle of the pack, largely because these movies are better 
either big hits or big failures. There's no trouble fending off some of the domestic failures in the groups like Elektra, Catwoman, one of the first Super Spin-Offs ever, Supergirl. One of the three Wolverine X-Men spin-offs has easily bested the debut of the Wolverine, but fell short of X-Men Origins Wolverine and Logan. And of course it didn't even come close to Deadpool or this year's sequel, Deadpool 2. Zero spin-off takes uh, landscape is about to get a lot more crowded as a result in the coming years, thanks to a number of projects from 20th Century Fox, Sony and Weather Brothers. Although Marvel's yet to spin off any of their huge MCU movies yet, one could perceive Black Panther as a spin-off since the character of T'Challa was first introduced in Captain America Civil War, or Wonder Woman as well, since she was introduced in Batman v Superman. But they still both feel way too big to be considered spin-offs. Sony will continue to sp- its Spider-Man spin-off universe with Morbius, while 20th Century Fox has Gambit and the New Mutants in the works, and Warner Brothers has several projects including a new Joker standalone origin film, Birds of Prey, and much more. While these projects may not open against each other, they still indicate that comic book franchise spin-offs like Venom aren't going away anytime soon. So yeah, that's kind of interesting to find out. And another movie that also had an interesting debut weekend, another movie that I would like to see that I have not a chance to see this past weekend, is A Star is Born. And like Venom, Stars Born also performed better than expected. So, this article from Vox. This weekend's box office returns the biggest ever for October opening weekend, propelled by a pair of musicians and a pile of black alien goo. Venom, obviously. Um, Stars Born delivered $41.25 million over the weekend, much higher than initial projections, along with a coveted A from CinemaScore, which bodes well for the movie's word-of-mouth prospects. Bradley Cooper's directorial debut is a f- the fourth version of a film that had previously starred icons like Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, and Janet Gaynor. This version stars Lady Gaga alongside Cooper. Strong vertical views also will likely set the film on the path to plot its during the upcoming award season. Venom actually has an audience score of V+, which is still pretty good. It was the same grade given to Justice League and Suicide Squad, so that's not as great, but... I'll be interested to see... Uh, to that point, the two movies drew very different audiences over the weekend. Venom's was 59% male, while A Star is Born was 66% female. 30% of Venom's audience was 25 or older, compared with 86% of A Star is Born's. Uh, the gap in target audience didn't stop got some Gaga fans from campaigning, some with more irony than others, to sink Venom via fake reviews last week. But as numbers show, it didn't matter in the end. The massive opening weekend success of both films in tandem led to the biggest October weekend of all, may bode well for the robust movie season ahead. That kind of is weird. I don't know why they would attack a movie that has no connections. It's not like they're both similar movies. It wasn't like it was La La Land up against A Star is Born, where they're very similar tones. Or if it was, they were doing this again, like if she was in like a Spider-Man movie that was opening against Venom. Like, it doesn't make sense why they need to trash one. They can both succeed, because they're both appealing to very different audiences. There's much people I know who are never going to see A Star is Born. And there's people who are never going to see Venom. That's just how people are. Some people want a music drama versus a superhero movie so yeah i don't think there's any need for that but both did well and that's all that really matters moving on to netflix doing something interesting netflix buys up a new mexico studio facility for massive new production hub the streaming service is settling down in the land of breaking bad when netflix moved to its uh new los angeles headquarters last year the company made sure it had several sound stages that they're ready for any production needs now the streaming service is taking things a step further, acquiring ABQ Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as a part of its plan to bring as much as $1 billion in production to the state over the next 10 years. Los Angeles is often thought of as a center for film and television production, but studios and production companies have been regularly traveling to other locations to shoot for years. States like New Mexico, 
for Breaking Bad and Netflix's Godless. And Georgia for The Walking Dead and Avengers Infinity War can provide a more attractive environment because they're not only less crowded than Los Angeles, but the states themselves also offer tax breaks and financial incentives that actually make it more cost-effective to shoot there. ABQ Studios, which boasts nine stages, over, offering over 170,000 square feet, have been the site of numerous high-profile movies and shows including Logan, Preacher, Better Call Saul, and the original Avengers. Locking down ABQ Studios will allow networks to be even more efficient and flexible with its original content production, something that has emerged as one of the most essential elements of its Disney of its programming strategy. Particularly with competitors like Amazon Prime and Hulu so active and Disney's streaming service just around the corner, last year Netflix estimated it would spend $8 billion on creating original content in 2018 alone. With the goal that in the next few years, half the company's available content will be original titles. Don't know how I feel about that, but it is what it is. Our experience... uh, producing shows and films in New Mexico inspired us to jump at the chance to establish a new production hub here. Ty Warren, Netflix Vice President of Physical Production, said in a statement, the people, the landscape, and the facilities are all stellar, and we can't wait to get to work and employ lots of New Mexicans, creating entertainment for the world to enjoy. So yeah, it looks like Netflix is definitely boosting their original programming, and hopefully we get some good content. I know the stuff they've been releasing lately, their new stuff, has been great, so definitely hoping they keep it up. And speaking of a lot of money, that involves a $1.4 million Banksy painting was destroyed. It, it destroyed itself as soon as it was sold. The legendary gorilla artist has struck again. So even though no one knew who he is, Banksy has become one of the most recognizable artists in the world through a combination of sophisticated art that critiques society and practical jokes that plays publicity stunts the artist has gained an international audience. The latest caper adding to the Banksy myth happened this weekend when his famous and now infamous piece, Girl with the Balloon, shredded itself just moments after being sold for $1.4 million. How did this even work? Banksy's Instagram account demonstrated the inner workings of his diabolical and brilliant plan. Banksy himself explained how the painting was destroyed in a fascinating insight into the whole scheme. Said in motion years ago when the artist installed a covert paper shredder in a frame simply to activate it it once the frame to art was up for sale. Sotheby's uh, facility, uh, Sotheby's, which I guess is the auction house, facilitated the auction that led to the destruction of the piece, and they're scrambling to figure out what to do now that they've been banksied. The shredded stunt has drawn more attention to the growth balloon than its exorbitant sale price, and many more speculation the piece could now be valued simply higher than 1.4 million given its newly secured place in the history of art. And I guess even posted an Instagram video that shows it happening. It is a pretty big frame, and all of a sudden, I guess, it, as soon as it sold, it something probably turned on, and then it just started shredding the, the painting. So, that's kind of awesome. So, good for Banksy. I guess he doesn't really care, and I guess he wasn't getting the money anyway. I have no idea. But yeah, and I guess uh, something else came out uh, since the last episode was a trailer for a movie that I'm pretty hyped for. I don't know if you guys will, but it involves so a lot of people's favorite Batman, which is Christian Bale. So Christian Bale is one who has always changed his appearance for different movie roles. He's lost a lot of weight. He's gained a lot of weight. He's bulked up. He's and this recently he has gained forty pounds. He grew out his neck. He dyed his hair white, dyed his eyebrows, shaved his head, all that stuff. He's Changed himself to become Dick Cheney. And uh, the trailer for Vice came out recently. And yeah, he's pretty unrecognizable. Like, if you, he looks pretty close to 
Dick Cheney, in my opinion. I mean, you can still tell it's his mouth and stuff, but everything else looks pretty good. So, uh, the first rolling trailer for the Dick Cheney movie, Vice has Landed, providing the first very good look at the transformed Christian Bale as George W. Bush's controversial vice president. Bale's almost Ryan Roxwell thanks to his latest shape-shifting effort. He told Dahu that he gained 40 pounds, shaved his head, and bleached his eyebrows for the wool. While co-star Steve Carell said to Collider that Bale did exercise to make his neck thicker to look more like Cheney's. The result is stunning as Bale certainly looked the party almost sexually captured some of Cheney's trademark mannerisms and his speaking style. This is just Leo's latest physical transformation for a wool with a diet consisting of whiskey and cigarettes. He got down to just 120 pounds for his role in 2000. Sorry. 2004 is the machinist before broking up immediately to play Batman and Batman Begins in the next year. Bale lost weight again for 2010's The Fighter in which he played accomplished boxer turned crack addict Dickie Eklund. He won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that role. Bale then put on put more than 40 pounds back on and grew his hair for the role of con artist Mel Weinberg in American Hustle. Vice also stars Oscar winner Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush, Amy Adams as Lynn Cheney, and Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld. It opens on Christmas Day, and it also is directed by Adam McKay, who used to direct a lot of uh, Will Ferrell films and has since gone to more dramatic movies with the big short being one that got a lot of Oscar attention. So for movie lovers out there, it's, this is definitely a good movie to check out. Big Short was a phenomenal movie, and it's definitely very from that trail alone. It was very similar in that style, and it, he used a lot of the same cast, so definitely worth checking out. And if you're a political buff like I am, definitely another good reason to check it out as well. So what else that happened over the weekend that's worth talking about is that was New York Comic Con 2018. So New York Comic Con wrapped yesterday, and it was a busy day uh, with plenty of new and highly anticipated titles like Daredevil, Star Trek, Discovery, and American Gods. Interestingly, much like the San Diego Comic-Con earlier this year, the big reveals of this year's NYCC were almost entirely from major television shows rather than movies. While we did get previews for films like Aquaman, Mortal Engines, and Hellboy. Uh, Hellboy, the trailer hasn't been released online yet, unfortunately. The slate of late 2018 and spring 2019 television shows dominated. So we got a trailer for American Gods Season 2. The next season of Star's adaption of Neil Gaiman's fantasy novel hit some considerable bumps in the last year. It lost not one, but two showrunners, and it's going to miss airing 2018 completely. Game of the cast stopped at the Hamston Ballroom to talk about what to expect in the new season, including several new faces, like new media played by Catherine Kim, Kath Kayun Kim, Asian name, ostensibly the replacement for the departed Gillian Anderson's media, and the queer First Nation student Sam Black Crow, Devery Jacobs, as well as the majority female directing lineup. Uh, also, we got an extended trailer for Aquaman, the brand new five-minute extended trailer for Aquaman, DC's second bid for charismatic redemption after Wonder Woman. Gave fans a much more detailed look at the forthcoming film, including more cyberpunks meets Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Otto Gunga aesthetics, and a, a peek at which what looks like an impressively shot rooftop fight sequence, a refreshing number of stoner dirtbag jokes from star Jason Momoa, and the best of all, evidence of an actual trident. So, that's good. Actually, I haven't watched the extended trailer. I was kind of busy this weekend, so I didn't get a chance. The trailer I did get to see, though, was the trailer from Marvel's Daredevil Season 3. Uh, Netflix dropped not one, but two teasers of Daredevil this year. The first shows what to expect when the show premieres October 17th, which is not that far away, another week. Uh, the Devil of Hell Kitchen faces a new threat as Kingpin turns the tide of public opinion against him thanks to a new mysterious enemy, which looks like it's going to be played by Bullseye. So, awesome. Another teaser, rather than let it flance back on who the enemy is, the cast trainer finally just tell the crowded exactly who Matt Marvel's will be going up against, Benjamin Dex Poindexter, a.k.a. Bullseye. 
and they released a second teaser to introduce that character, which I haven't watched, so definitely check that out after I'm done recording this. Also getting a trailer for Good Omens, which is another Neil Gaiman show like American Gods. Uh, Good Omens is the adapt from the novel he co-wrote with the late Terry Pratchett. It's also slated to begin streaming on Amazon Prime sometime in early 2019. The trailer, which, along with a few brief clips, debuted to an adoring crowd at Madison Square Garden's Hulu Theater, showed the extremely British odd couple comedy in which Azura Fail, the angel, played by Michael Sheen, and Crowd the Demon, played by David Tennant, must work together to stave off Armageddon. Like Martin Sheen, I like David Tennant. This looks like a win-win for me, and I have Amazon Prime, so definitely going to stick with that. Also got a trailer for Harley Quinn, which is that uh, other DC Universe um, streaming. So actually, um, so it looks like um, the resulting teaser is very meta-addressing Con goes directly as well as name-checking Donald Glover's canceled Deadpool cartoon and DC's tendency to make their films too dark and gritty. Harley Quinn even drops an F-bomb, all hail premium subscription content. Like I said, they're, it's coming to the DC Universe. I heard it's being voiced by Kaylee Kyoko, who is the the girl on Big Bang Theory. So if you like her, you might like her playing, the, playing Harley Quinn. So yeah, more on that. And I guess they also released a trailer for Mortal Engines, which I first saw for a movie a while back, like a quick trailer of like a small city on wheels being attacked by London, which is a giant city on wheels. So yeah, that's interesting. Another trailer for Overlord, which I've seen some trailers for already. Um, I guess it stars um, Wyatt Russell, who's the guy from that particularly horrifying Black Mirror episode playtest. So cool. Um, it takes place what appears to be an alternate universe to World War II in which a mysterious Nazi developed serum brings American soldiers back from the dead with deeply disturbing consequences. So, sounds kind of awesome. Uh, trailer for Dis- Star Trek Discovery Season 2. Along with the first look at Spock, whose face star suggests he's seen better days. So, interesting. Um, then a couple other trailers. Uh, the Boys sounds kind of interesting. So, like AMC's preacher, The Boys is a Garth Ennis. Comic being adapted this time from Amazon Prime by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and now Supernatural creator Eric Kripke. Centering on a team of super-powered CIA operatives tasked with policing a world where shellac celebrity superheroes cause more trouble than they prevent. Judging by the tease they arrived over the weekend, it'll have the cynical meta-feel of a Watchman or Sin City if either had a sense of humor. We've also got another trailer for Titans and Voltron. So, yeah, definitely some good stuff going on. Uh... Tartu also came back over the weekend um, with the with the first female doctor, played by Jodie Whittaker, and I heard so far that uh, did really well in terms of viewers, and apparently from the people I've seen post about it, that she did a great job. So we'll say Doctor Who, the new season's off to a great start. Start, sorry. Uh, got a little tongue-tied here. Great start. So I think I should probably stop talking for today. It looks like I am... It's been a long day. I've... Uh, we might get into this on adulting uh, on Wednesday, but do a lot of sighting work today, so I am just run down. So a little sleepy, but the show must go on. So, but I think that'll do it for this week. It's gonna be a little bit of a shorter episode. I'm definitely gonna try and make this a little longer going forward. It's just kind of one of those days, and if I have more time to blend ahead, dig into the news for you guys, I will have definitely a lot more to share. Maybe I'll find something to rant about. But and definitely episode. Uh, 
five of poor news next week is going to be pretty intense. I'm going to have guests. I still got to coordinate scheduling on that, but that should be a lot of fun. So definitely stay tuned for that next week. Check out all the other shows on our network at journeyintocomics.com. You can check us out where all podcasts are found by just searching Journey to Comics. Only have to subscribe to one item to get all those shows. We also have uh, uh, a show out there that has broken off from us. They're still much a part of our network, but they have their own feed, which is great for them, and that is Podcast Fee. So Dick and Tyler now have their own feed, so they can b- release more content. So check them out um, at Podcast Fee, where you can find podcasts like Apple Podcast and Stitcher Radio and all that stuff. So check them out there. We also have a Patreon you can subscribe to. I saw just before this, which will be entertaining if you're into that. So uh, as any of you know, uh, Nate, the podfather himself, who hosts Journey into Comics, has a band that he talks about, uh, Walk Among Us, that he does with Veronica and Sarah. And it looks like they just started a Kickstarter. So I think you'll probably go to Kickstarter and search uh, Walk Among Us. You might find this, but it looks like they are raising money for studio time to release their first EP. So definitely I think you can just... I don't know if there's... I think it's just one thing. Basically, you're paying for the either a digital version or a vinyl version of that. So it's great news for them. I know they've definitely blown up in terms of viewership and gigs and stuff like that. So great news for them. So it's kind of entertainment news. So definitely check them out. Um, I think if you go to Facebook and go search Walk Among Us, you can see some uh, audio from some of their shows or some of the stuff they share for their Misfit Mondays or uh, I don't know what they little do. They do a little weekly uh, song with Sarah and Veronica on piano. Yeah, punk rock piano tribute to the Misfits. So definitely check out Walk Among Us if you're a fan of that kind of music. So yeah, definitely do that. But that'll do it for Poor Entertainment for this week. I'm Andrew Poor. Have a great, great week.